Hello. Hello there on LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube, and hello there in three, two, one on Instagram. Hello, Instagram. Hello, LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube. Um, I'm really grateful and really delighted to have your company today. Uh, And what are we doing today? What are we even talking about? We are talking about a series of sessions, um, a series of CLE sessions, uh, continuing legal education sessions, um, where we're going to sit down together and we're going to learn about a legal topic. Now, today's topic, thank you all very, very kindly for joining in. Today's topic is going to be all about partnership disputes. Uh, And when we say partnership We're not speaking about a uh, emotional partnership or a marital partnership where people might be partners in life. We're not speaking in a wishy-washy way about people who went into business together and refer to themselves as partners. We're speaking about the very technical, um, the very technical element. Sorry, I'm just I'm just waving on the app to everyone entering the room. If you can see me fiddling around down there, Um, today we're going to be talking about the very technical legal meaning of the word partnership. And we're going to be working through some disputes in relation to partnership. Now, let's get some admin out of the way and we'll start the proper talk in a couple of minutes. Now, this is the fourth in a series of five talks I have been in the process of giving through July and August. And I can't believe we're already at our second last talk, hearts are breaking all round. I can't believe that we're all getting through our mourning periods um, after the Matildas' heartbreaking loss to England in the semi-final last night. I'm still not really over it. I presume you're not really over it either. So I really appreciate you uh, coming in and being a part of today's session. What we're going to do today is we're going to talk firstly about the law as it relates to partnership disputes. We're just going to go through, you know, the, the technical bits and pieces about, well, what is the law as it relates to partnerships? And once we've gone through the technical bits and pieces, we're going to spend quite a long time working through litigated examples. What actually happens when you have a partnership dispute going on? Uh, Brendan, I totally agree with you. The Matildas did do us proud despite the loss. Uh, That probably heightens the heartbreak. Um, uh, We're going to talk about these litigated examples. That's going to be the second part of the talk. And then the third part of today's talk is going to be some practical suggestions. And just to spoil the ending, as I so often do, one of the practical suggestions I'm going to make is that uh, you, if you are a person in business or flirting with going into business, or you, if you're a lawyer advising someone about going into business, you ought to get a written partnership agreement in place or potentially consider even whether partnership is the right structure for you if you are the person in business or your client, if you are the lawyer advising, because there are some technical fiddly bits of partnership law that we're going to work through today. All right, let's go, says Justin. I appreciate it. Appreciate the fire emojis. If you've got any fire emojis to share, please feel free to fire away with them. And I'm so sorry for that terrible joke. Now, Uh, A couple more bits of admin. I'm working from a paper. So if you see me glancing in this direction, I'm looking at a paper that I'm working from and I'm very happy to share it. So please feel free to uh, DM me or send me an email uh, and I'd be very happy to send you a copy of the paper. Uh, Look, in my view, it's pretty useful. I'm certainly finding it pretty useful now. And um, if there's anything that you missed from today or, or if you'd like to have the written kind of backup in relation to our discussion, there's that. 
Uh, I'll also say that during these sessions, I often get nice little apologies. I'm sorry I had to leave early. I had another commitment. That is totally fine. Uh, on whatever platform you're watching this on, so Instagram, for example, um, the this video is going to be uploaded shortly after the session. So if you have to leave early, you'll miss the chance to comment and ask questions and engage, but the thing will still be there for you. Uh, similarly, if you're on YouTube, yes, Facebook, I think so, and LinkedIn, I think so. Um, this will stay uploaded. So don't sort of fret if you've got to leave the room. I'd love to have your company during the session, but don't beat yourself up if you've got to go and do some things. Um, the one other thing um, I'll raise is, because I've seen it come up on a couple of platforms now, is if I can ask you please not to add your contact details in the comments below, because I can't then come back to those. If I can ask you to just ping me a DM on whatever platform you might be on or send me an email, I'm, I'm pretty easy to find, pretty easy to Google. And so let us begin. Um, I said that we're talking about partnership in the specific technical sense. Mike Seaton, great to have you in the room. Appreciate you joining in. So we're talking about partnership in the specific sense. We're certainly not talking about it in the family law sense. That, uh, sorry, I just got a phone call that I had to hang up on. Um, uh, so we're certainly not talking about it in the family law sense of partnership, nor are we talking about it in kind of the loose, uh, wishy-washy way um, that, that you might think of, oh yeah, we're business partners. We're talking about it in a very technical legal way. And right now we're gonna work through those fiddly little technical legal bits that we're going to be able to figure out together. So there are three sort of broad issues that you're gonna grapple with when you're thinking about partnership law. And there are essentially three questions, right? Does a partnership exist? And that's a pretty important question to ask because if a partnership exists, then there are some really solemn duties that arise between the partners. So your clients are gonna to wanna to know if you're a lawyer or you are gonna to wanna to know if you're potentially in partnership, whether you are indeed in partnership because there are some solemn things that flow from that. You owe duties and you're the beneficiary of those duties on the other side. What are the features of a partnership? So often when the court is looking at question one, is there a partnership? The court will be examining question two. What are the features of a partnership? Tick, tick, tick. Does the thing we're looking at have these features or not? And so those two questions are often linked together. Um, Mina, I love the economy of that comment. Hello, hello to you. Great to have your company. Um, and that'll be uh, the second of sort of the technical legal questions we look at. What are the features of a partnership? And then we're gonna look at dissolution. What happens at the end of a partnership? How does it end and what happens at the end? So the first question we're gonna look at is the existence of a partnership. Now, um, I'm looking at the New South Wales legislation. There is different pieces of legislation in different jurisdictions. So it's important that you, when you're advising your client, or you, if you're thinking about whether this is the right structure for you, are looking at the legislation or the relevant law that applies in your jurisdiction. So when I make comments during this talk about sections, about acts, I'm talking about the New South Wales Act. And the acts are similar between Australian jurisdictions, but they're not identical. And so I just thought I'd bring that to your attention now. Okay. Um, interestingly, section two of the Partnership Act, New South Wales, as I said, um, has some notes on what is not necessarily sufficient to form a partnership. Now, a partnership is importantly, it's not merely co-owning property, right? The fact that you and I might co-own some property, you and I might equally own, let's say, a license for some intellectual property, or we might equally own a piece of land together, 
the very fact of co-ownership is not enough to say, bang, you're both partners. There needs to be more than that. Secondly, um, the mere sharing of profits, sharing of profits is one of the features of partnerships we're going to get to, but the mere sharing of profits in and of itself is not necessarily sufficient to say that a certain relationship is a partnership, right? So while it's necessary, it's not sufficient. And it's one of those uh, nice little uh, legal phrases you might bump into from time to time. You do need to show there's profit sharing, but it's not enough to show that there's mere profit sharing. Okay. We also say that, sorry, I also want to bring to your attention that it's not necessary for the partnership agreement to be what we say reduced to writing. So it doesn't have to be a written agreement, it can be a handshake, it can be an oral agreement, or it can be something short of a very detailed and formal legal written agreement. So co-ownership is not enough. Sharing of profits is not enough, but it doesn't have to be in writing. So what are some features of partnerships? What are kind of the five boxes you need to tick, essentially, to say, right, the relationship we're looking at is indeed a partnership and is not merely, let's say, to speak broadly, a co-ownership agreement. So if I can just, yeah, sorry, I raised that in a bit of a fiddly way. And Hazel, it's great to have your company in the room. So let's say that we are comparing what we might call a co-ownership agreement, which might describe the agreement between you and I as to how we're going to manage this co-owned asset. And you might say, hey, that's a partnership agreement. We're in partnership. And I might say, no, 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 we are not. I'm only gonna be able to say no if I can say that you do not satisfy these criteria for a partnership to arise. And you are only going to be able to prove yes if you can prove that there are these key features of a partnership um, in place. Now, what are they? There are five of them. Uh, the first one is mutual agency, right? What that means is the act of one partner binds the others. So if you can prove that the agreement we have that you and I have entered into is such that my act, you know, um, shaking hands and agreeing to move into some office space or agreeing to, you know, purchase some widgets or what provide some services or whatever it might be, that act binds the other partners. So that is important and an important feature of partnership. Sharing of profits. Right, we mentioned this earlier. Um, partners are entitled to share in profits. Now, remember that there are other relationships where people can share in profits. There might be some senior employees employed by a firm who get some sort of commission-y, profit-share-y type scenario. There might be ugh, uh, executives of an estate um, where the deceased is a former partner of a partnership where there's entitlement to share in profits. But um, it is not enough alone to say, yeah, we share in profits, therefore it's partnership but it is necessary. So I was, going to, I was going to misstate that. It is a necessary feature of partnership. Importantly, the sharing of losses is a feature of partnership. So if we think about something like an employee share sort of arrangement or, or an employee participation in profits, you might have a senior employee in a small firm and there might be this kind of, oh, they share in profits. Is this a partnership or not? One of the key indicia for proving it is not could be um, saying that this senior employee does not share in the losses of the company. And a corollary to that is that there's common capital for the partnership. The capital is a partnership asset, and that can often be determinative for the court. 
right? So if you and I are in a business arrangement where I've invented some software, then if so, then if that software is to be an asset of the partnership versus an asset of mine that I license onto the partnership, that's going to be an active question. And it could end up being determinative as to whether a partnership exists at all. Is that IP or is that piece of land, whatever it might be, property of the partnership? And then finally, the unassignability of the partnership relationship. You can't assign outside of you know contractual situations that parties to the contract might be able to set up. You can't assign your rights or obligations under a partnership agreement effectively. Now, there are other little fiddly bits of uh, the features of partnership, but um, what we find is that it's engagement with those five that will often go a considerable way to you determining whether a partnership exists. So often you're going to be confronted with these issues, perhaps not so much as a transactional lawyer who someone comes in and says, I want a partnership agreement, please. But you might be engaging with it uh, as perhaps an estate planning lawyer who says, oh, don't worry, dad and uncle were engaged in a partnership for a large number of years. Uh, and that's how they ran the farm or something like that. And you might have to give an advice in relation to that. Or you might have someone say, hey, we're founding an exciting new technology, a new, a new technology startup, and we'd like a partnership agreement. And so um, there's sort of a number of different sets of circumstances where engaging with the nature of the law of partnership is going to be something you're going to want to do to ensure that you're giving the right sort of advice and you're grappling appropriately with the issues. Now, um, I remember I said we broke we're going to break this talk into three and then we broke that first bit into a further three, right? So the talk's going to be we'll talk about the law, we'll do some litigated examples, then we'll do practical suggestions. And then we broke talking about the law into three bits. Is there a partnership? What are the features of partnership? We've covered those two. And then the third part is what happens at the end of the partnership? How do you dissolve it? Well, there can be a fixed term because a partnership agreement is essentially just a contract subject to the normal um, law applying to commercial construction. So if you agreed in a partnership agreement for 18 months, 18 years, 18 decades, um, it uh, expires at the conclusion of the fixed term, if indeed there has been a term fixed. Uh, often, especially in litigated examples, and you don't see the structure being used quite so often, but um, there were a lot of partnership agreements relating to a single venture. And often that venture would be um, have the sort of flavour of, of what we might call a JV for the development of a piece of land. So you and I might enter into a partnership agreement to purchase, uh, develop and then sell the land at 123 Bloggs Street uh, in Sydney. And the end of the partnership might be the distribution of profits at the conclusion of you know that development after we've sold it and paid out the appropriate fees. So you can have a single venture partnership. Uh, partnership can be dissolved just by notice as well. So pursuant to the relevant pieces of legislation, um, you find that um, there can be um, dissolution of the partnership just simply by issuing a notice pursuant to the relevant Partnership Act, which leads me to this very good uh, comment or question here from Hyder. Um, Hyder asks, is there a specific act that deals with partnerships? Yes, it's the well-named Partnership Act, um, but uh, we take a lot of guidance from the common law in relation to it as well. So there is going to be a partnership act in each Australian jurisdiction. And just to reiterate an earlier point, 
Today, I'm going to be talking about the New South Wales legislation, which is similar but not identical throughout Australia. Now, um, when else can a partnership be dissolved? So a partnership can be dissolved um, on an application to the court. Uh, there can be a partner declared of unsound mind. It can be just and equitable. There can be a partner permanently incapable of executing their duties, a willful breach. Death is a pretty good way to dissolve a partnership. Uh, things like bankruptcy and things like an insolvency event on the case of a partner will often be dealt with contractually. It'll often be set up in the partnership agreement as a basis for dissolving the partnership. Now, we're reviewing the law of partnership, right? We're in the middle of the really hard, we're coming to the end of the really hard bit of today's chat. And we're about to move on to some judicially considered examples of partnership disputes. But there were just a number of things I wanted you to hang on to before we leave this discussion about the technical law and get into when the rubber hits the road. Now, the disputes in relation to partnerships are sometimes about, is this a partnership or not? You know, what are the features of this relationship? Are they sharing profits? Are they sharing losses? Is there mutual agency? This sort of stuff. But there are a number of partnerships disputes that are what we might call sort of satellite or corollary type disputes that are essentially about where are we paying the corpus of this partnership? We've got these partnership assets. Uh, we're going to have a, you know, receive a manager appointed to these assets. What is the proportion that the proceeds are going to be paid in? So two different types of disputes we'll be bumping into today. I hope that assists. Let me just do a bit of admin before we move into the second section of today's paper. So three sections to today's paper. We're talking law. We've just done that. Uh, we're going to move on to judicially considered examples. Uh, that is going to start very soon. Third section, I'm going to make some practical suggestions for you that you can put to use in your practice. I'm reading from a paper. If you'd like a copy of it, great. Uh, please send me a DM, send me an email, and I'd be delighted to uh, send it on. Uh, and then finally, the final bit of admin just now is that this is the fourth in a series of five CLEs um, that I've been giving over July and August 2023. They've been really good fun. Uh, I can't believe at the end of this discussion we're going to be 80% done. My heart's a little bit broken about it. It feels very Matilda's last night um, about it. Um, but I really hope you've been enjoying the sessions. And if you have, I'd be grateful if you sort of shared a link or told people about it or whatever it might be. Okay, let's get into the second part of the talk, the judicially considered examples. The first decision we're going to turn to is just a quick spoiler alert, one that we're going to come back to. We're actually going to get a sequel to it a little bit later. And it's a decision called Chickabo and Zvia. And this decision relates to the operating of an accountancy firm um, the accountancy firm is a partnership founded by deed. And what the accountancy firm does is provide some accountancy and bookkeeping kind of services. And the way it develops business is that it tries to get its principles. And I'm going to come back to use of the word principles. So just hang on to that in your head. Um, I'm going to get, great to see you, JB. I'm going to get that idea of principles stuck in your head if I can. But one of the goals of this accountancy firm was to try to develop business by getting its principals appointed to the board of some of its bigger clients so that the principals would then become a part of these big clients moving through the world. And of course, they could funnel work back towards the accountancy firm. Now, let's be nice and clear about what these uh, principles were all about. 
these principles were great to see you, JB. These principles were all about, um, sorry, I withdraw that. These principles were natural persons, like flesh and blood, uh, probably almost entirely old white guys, which is a bit of a bummer, but flesh and blood people. And the, the parties that entered into partnership were actually companies controlled by these flesh and blood people, right? So if I can just ask you to hang on to this, James, this guy was not a partner. James PTY Limited as trustee for the James Trust was a partner, right? So the deed that controlled the structure of this partnership was a partnership between James PTY Limited, between you PTY Limited, and between Blogsy PTY Limited. The partnership was not between James, you, and Blogsy, right? So on paper, it's just a whole bunch of companies signing up to a deed and holding out the natural persons, the flesh and blood people, holding them out as the principals. And I think they sometimes refer to them as partners in the loose sense of the accounting firm. Now, crucially today, we have a natural person um, who goes off and gets appointed to the board of one of the firm's clients. And the appointment apparently goes well. And there is an investment made and a thank you payment made. And I use the term thank you payment very loosely with great respect. I'm, I'm sort of being a little wishy-washy with the details. But in essence, we have $15 million end up in the hands of um, the well, re uh, entities related to this corporate entity and entities related to this natural person. Um, and so uh, what I uh, want to convey to you is that as a result of this business development opportunity, this partner gets 15 grand in the hand for their entities. Uh, anyone who has to leave, Martha, that is so respectful and kind of you to add the comment, apologizing for leaving earlier. Uh, early. Anyone who needs to leave, please, please feel welcome. I'd love you to stay and make comments and ask questions, but this talk will stay up on whatever platform you're watching on now. So look, love as many people in the room as I can get, but totally understand everyone's got lives to lead and, yeah, this will be here for you when you come back. Sorry, so if I can return to this decision. So we've got $15 million that is diverted away from the accountancy firm, the partnership. And so what the firm does is sue. And the people the firm sues include the natural person, the flesh and blood person, right, who got some of these payments and failed to account for them. Now, what that natural person says is, yeah, okay, maybe my company, speaking loosely, maybe my company's a partner. And so maybe my company owes these fiduciary relationships to the, to the lottiers, to the restiers, but I'm a flesh and blood person. You can't see my, I'm not a party to this agreement. Me, PTY Limited is a party, but not me, right? And so what is asserted is, no, 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 no. This partnership agreement gives rise to obligations, not merely between the companies, but between the natural persons as well. So this is the question the court is forced to grapple with because um, it's litigated. They're saying, no, no, that like the bloke himself, the natural person is a party. And so there are some really interesting operative bases for the court coming to its decision with respect. Um, and one of them is that the deed sets out what happens in relation to things like illness, things like sickness, things like bankruptcy, things like age. And illness, sickness, death, bankruptcy, age, well, I guess age technically, but those other things can't really happen to companies. Can't have a company go bankrupt. You can have a company be placed into liquidation, of course, or be insolvent. But 
you know, bankrupt is not a description that can be applied in a technical sense in a meaningful way to a company. Similarly, it can't be dead. Death can't be applied to it. And so noting that and noting the broader sort of commercial circumstances and the fact that the deed would be, parts of the deed would be rendered a nonsense if the court was to hold that the natural persons were not parties to the agreement, the court found that the natural persons were indeed parties and so the partnership was indeed entitled to recover against the natural person for the breach of fiduciary duties. I've got a lot of cases to work through. We're not going to work through them all. I'm going to have a sip of water and I'm going to invite you to ask any questions you might have. And remind, <coughs> remind you that if you want the citations for any of these cases, I can hand them to you and they'll be in the paper if you want to ask for a copy of them. That is fine. Okay. We're now going to turn to a decision called Murray and Ferros. And um, the short point in relation to Murray and Ferros is that there are these various uh, groups that enter into an agreement relating to the running of a pharmacy group. We've got six different sort of entities or structures in relation to a group of pharmacies. Three of them are partnerships between the same people. The fourth of them is a partnership between those people and one extra. And then the fifth and sixth are companies controlled by those three people. And this group is run by way of like a management board who, despite the fact that all six of these entities, well, I don't need to show you how many is in six, we can all count, hopefully, um, despite the fact that um, each of these six entities is, is a legally distinct uh, either entity in the case of the companies or relationship in the case of the partnerships, um, it is run uh, at heart by one management board. And there are difficulties with this management board. There are problems with finance. There are problems with the way it's going to be run. Uh, the financiers getting a little bit toey and is talking about receivership and all this scary sort of stuff. And so um, in the circumstances, one of the sets of partners comes to the court and applies for the partnerships to be dissolved on the just and equitable basis and for the companies to be placed into liquidation, to be wound up on the just and equitable basis. And um, in short, the court found with all this stuff looming with these, pardon me, with these management challenges, um, it was indeed appropriate that the companies be wound up. Now, there are a couple of other things that flowed from that. Firstly, the identity of the liquidators slash receivers. So you appoint receiver managers to the assets of a partnership and you appoint liquidators to companies. So here we have what receiver managers are we going to appoint to these four partnerships and what liquidators are we going to appoint to these two companies? And the court uh, was presented with two competing um, insolvency practitioners are, are, are competing uh, potential receiver managers and liquidators. And the court decided upon um, uh, receiver manager and liquidator being the same party, which strikes me with great respect as very good sense. And they elected uh, parties who had experience dealing with pharmacies. And so what we learned about there, I say, um, is that the court is going to, with great respect, turn its attention reasonably closely to the nature of the identities that a person looking to dissolve a partnership wants to get involved. Now, um, the one other um, issue is the, the costs of the dissolution. Now, our defendant said, oh, hey, um, you know, the plaintiffs should bear their own legal costs of this. And the court found, no, the costs of the dissolution were not improperly incurred. The cost of the dissolution are properly considered costs of the partnership 
And so the partnership ought to pay for them. And so what we learn is that um, these six entities or two entities and four relationships um, are the subject of uh, the appointment of a receiver or the appointment of a liquidator. Uh, we find that the choice of identity for that person is someone experienced in the industry. And we find that the legal costs associated with the application are paid from the corpus of the companies or from the assets of the partnership. Now, I've got lots of questions. I'll, I'll try to answer one. Um, Justin asks, thoughts on a situation where business partners are all direct? Uh-huh. Now, Justin, can I be really nitpicky? Can we, as lawyers, try to use the word partners? And I ask this with great respect, and I, I don't expect everyone to be able to agree. But if we can try to avoid using the word partners, um, unless we're describing partners in the partnership sense, because my brain will start to fall out. Thoughts on a situation where business partners, where fellow business people, if you'll forgive me for editing your question, Justin, are all directors of a company, and then one director secures a board position on one of the company's clients. Any curly obligations to be considered? Yes, Justin. The, oh, principles. Oh, Justin makes the correction uh, with his next comment. I'm very, I'm very grateful. Um, uh, the short point is, Justin. Uh, yes, there are considerations to be made. So where there are directors um, on a board of one company, and we're thinking about whether one of those directors might accept an appointment to another client company of the corporation, the question of conflict of interest uh, looms very, very centrally. Because, and not to get too distracted and sort of dive into corporate law and director's duties, but that director owes a duty to the firm company, if we describe it that way, whatever the service provider company is. And if that director takes an appointment at the client company, that director will owe profound duties at the client company as well. Now, the duties at the client company are probably to reduce fees from external consultants and the director's duties at the uh, firm company are probably getting some more consultant fees. So as you might imagine, I'd say with great respect, there would be curly issues to be dealt with, but relationships like that are not utterly unusual and indeed in Chicago versus Sphere, which is why I suspect the fact pattern has jumped into your head, um, we, there are ways and means for dealing with this stuff, often by agreement and by, by disclosure to the existing companies, the nature of the relationships and that sort of thing. So there are curly issues and they can be dealt with. Hope that answer assisted. Okay, um, uh, let us move to the next decision. And I just don't wanna do that one because we've got lots to get through and I can afford to be choosy. So. Um, I'm working from a paper where we've missed now at least one decision that I don't think we'll get time to discuss. I'm going to move to another decision now. This is a decision of the Victorian Court of Appeal called Jafari and 23 Developments. Now, this is a fiddly, um, thanks to all the people recently joining, I suspect someone's just shared a link to this in a WhatsApp chat or something like that. So thanks to whomever did that. I'm very grateful. It's fun to have more people in the room. Um, Jafari and 23 Developments relates to the uh, development of a piece of land. And what our would-be vendor does is enter into some negotiations with our eventual purchaser in relation to the purchase of some land that is then going to be developed. And it's a reasonably sort of challenging piece of land and it's pretty technical and it's pretty expensive and it's, it's all pretty complex stuff. Now, there are these uh, discussions progressing between would-be vendor and purchaser. And I name would-be vendor would-be vendor because before any sale is completed or anything like that, um, a mortgagee in possession is appointed to the property and the would-be vendor 
cannot be the vendor because uh, they no longer own the property. The mortgagee in possession has taken ownership. The mortgagee in possession sells to the person who we call the purchaser eventually and does so with the would-be vendor's sort of support and the would-be vendor's involvement. And as you might remember, I said there was some complexity to the property and the development. And so the would-be vendor's kind of hanging around to be available to the purchaser in relation to the development of this land. And so what happens is the land is then developed. Uh, a significant amount is realised for it. That amount is not jumping out off the page, but is oh, around $6 million. And so what our would-be vendor says is this. Our would-be vendor says um, these various agreements, these various discussions, oh, it's great to have Jody in the room. Um, thanks for joining us, Jody. Um, what our would-be vendor says is these various discussions we had in relation to the development of the land were, were in the nature of a partnership agreement. A partnership agreement has been struck between you and I you sold the land for 12 million bucks. And so as your partner, you need to account to me for one half of that sum. The land was partnership property and you sold it. That's fine. Great. Sold it. And so you need to come and account to me as a partner in respect of that land. Now, the eventual purchaser needs to deal with this submission from the would-be vendor. And so the court is then asked the question, essentially, well, was there a partnership? If the answer is yes, then the partners owe each other duties and the purchaser partner has to account to the would-be vendor on account of, that, of those millions of dollars. If the answer is no, then the land was not partnership property. There wasn't a partnership in place in respect of it. And so there's no obligation to account. Spoiler, um, the court finds no, there is no partnership the reasons for that, do you remember we discussed at the start of the talk, what are the features of a partnership? The reason there was no partnership includes, or in fact, was because the arrangement between the would-be vendor and the purchaser did not conform to, the, did not include, did not contain the features of a partnership. There was no term that our purchaser took ownership of the property on behalf of the partners, as partners. Um, the, I keep having people from work phoning me. Surely everyone's watching this. Hugh and Hugh and Grace, I love you guys so, so much, but please, I, I just cannot believe you're not watching this gripping presentation on partnership disputes. Um, and sorry, anyone in the office who um, sees me getting interrupted, it's it's Hugh and Grace, those lovely, crazy characters. Um, they, keep, they keep trying to buzz my phone when I'm on live on Instagram, live on YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn. Why did the court find this was not a partnership relationship? Um, well, there was no, team, no term dealing with liability um, in relation to the sharing of losses. Um, and interestingly, the partners, uh, I'll, I'll draw that, the parties who were not partners, great to have you join us, Emma, um, the parties who were not partners um, had gone through various draft incarnations of this agreement. And as you might imagine, um, we sort of, Tick, tick, cross, 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 tick. You know, here's a draft. Here's my red pen through this bit. We go through these amendments. And interestingly, one of the drafts had terms describing the parties as partners. Hey, yep, we're going to be partners. We're going to have these obligations. And that was sort of struck through by the partners to very clearly indicate, no, we are not between ourselves going to engage on this on the basis of it being a partnership. 
But another case. And I should say, if you've got any questions, I'm going to do my best to answer them. I, I probably won't be able to get to them all, but if you want to drop them in the in the notes, in the comments, I'll try to get to them. We're going to move to another case. Oh, I'm sorry, for anyone who's just joined, I'm working from notes. If you'd like a copy of them, that's fine. Just ping me a DM or send me an email. I'd be happy to send you a copy of them. Uh, this is the fourth in a series of five CLE sessions I'm giving between sort of July and August 2023. I'm having a good time doing them. I hope they're bringing you value. They're sort of hard, but um, yeah, I hope, hope people are enjoying them. So I'd love to hear if they're bringing you any value. So, so please feel free to let me know about that. Okay, let's turn to our next decision. This is a decision of the Supreme Court of New South Wales from this year, reasonably recent. Um, it's a decision called MIR, that's how I'm gonna pronounce it, M-I-R, MIR and MIR. And it's interesting, and we're gonna talk about it now. It traverses a number of different areas of law, but let's get into it. So we're in the 1950s and we've got three brothers who start a business and it becomes successful. And the relationship between the three brothers is quite informally recorded, as is the relationship between those three brothers' kids, right? So this business becomes quite successful and um, what it comes to do is come to own and develop reasonably substantial bits of real property. And it comes to do so in a very tax effective way from around the 1970s. What is important is this group that has a significant value, let's just make up a value and say it's $500 million worth of assets. The way these assets are held is some of them are held by partnerships and they're partnerships by different parties and sometimes the spouses of these three brothers, sometimes the kids of the three brothers, sometimes companies that have been incorporated, these sorts of things. But a vast majority of the assets, these reasonably valuable pieces of land, are subject to different trusts. So you might have a trust for the piece of land known as 123 Smith Street. That might be owned by the company 123 Smith Street PTY Limited. And it might be trustee of the 123 Smith Street Trust. And the beneficiaries of the 123 Smith Street Trust might be one or some of the three brothers or their spouses or their kids or someone related to them. And that way you have these reasonably valuable assets in tax effective vehicles. The challenge we have here is that we have 123 Smith Street owned that way, but then we've got 456 Smith Street that is owned by 456 Smith Street PTY Limited, uh, and that is held on trust by 456 Smith Street PTY Limited for perhaps very similar, perhaps identical beneficiaries or perhaps very similar, but this happened six years later and so maybe there's a different spouse or maybe there's a new company incorporated. But in essence, this is another very uh, satisfying, I withdraw that, very tax effective, I guess tax effectiveness can be satisfying as well. Um, another very tax effective structure for 456 Smith Street. But you might remember this is quite a large group with quite a large bunch of asset holdings. So imagine this 123, 456, 789 Smith Street, 789 Smith Street Trust, 789 Smith Street PTY Limited, beneficiaries of the 789 Smith Street Trust as well. Bang, 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 bang for a really significant and valuable bunch of companies. That's our structure, right? Three brothers at the top and this sort of informal, yeah, hey, we're sort of together in partnership. But what we're sort of in quote, quote, partnership about is a large number of these quite tax effective structures that are on their face individuals, right? Because 123 Smith Street 
is not necessarily subject to a more formalized structure. Now, the brothers agree more or less between themselves to go their separate ways, but there's one plaintiff brother who's particularly disappointed. And this plaintiff brother attempts to say, look, this group is an overarching, like the whole thing, come on, you know, it's a partnership. I know it's broken up into these little bits, a couple of little partnerships here, a few little trusts, a few little companies, all that sort of thing, but it's a partnership. And I'm giving notice for dissolution of the partnership, or I'm suggesting that it ought to be uh, dissolved on the just and equitable basis. And that should be that. And what the court said was no uh, in relation to that, uh, because um, the assets, I withdraw that, because the relationship between the three brothers, I withdraw that, because the assets that formed part of the assets of the group were not themselves partnership assets. They were assets of each of the individual trusts. And the plaintiff wasn't able to point to 123 Smith Street PTY Limited, point to a specific asset and say, hey, in relation to this asset, uh, this is a partnership asset or this, this falls on the balance sheet of the partnership or whatever it might be. And so the plaintiff said, oh, okay. Uh, and an alternate claim is a sort of claim we'll be discussing next time we have one of these CLE sessions in a fortnight. Um, it was to wind up the group on the just and equitable basis. Tim, great to have you join the session. And what the court said was, well, no, hang on. The group cannot be wound up on the just and equitable basis uh, because the group is not itself one company. What you need to do is you need to put evidence in front of the court that each of the constituent parts of the group needs itself to be wound up. 123 Smith Street PTY Limited needs to be wound up. 4567 uh, Smith Street PTY Limited needs to be wound up. 6789 each of these single parts of the group need to be subject to its own application if indeed there are to be orders made that have the effect of winding up the various entities in the structure. And what the court said was, the evidence you've put before us ventilates difficulties with the whole group. It doesn't ventilate difficulties with each precise pinpoint version, I withdraw the word version, each pinpoint structure or company within that group. And so the court says, look, they're also not parties to it, right? So the court says that, look, we cannot order the winding up of the whole group, nor each of these independent parties. And so the plaintiff fails. The plaintiff fails to dissolve this group. And the court notes that the plaintiff fails on this dissolution application in circumstances where the three brothers more or less agree that, look, yeah, look, we're not really getting along. Yeah, look, the structure isn't really doing the work for us that we would have hoped for. And so on one view, and the court accepts this, it's not the most satisfying outcome. And the reason I wanted to raise this for you today is to say that there's actually a significant amount with, with respect of logic behind the adoption of this structure, right? You have a piece of land owned by a trust. Uh, you have that trust distributing the proceeds of ownership of that land, whether that be selling it for a profit, whether that be generating rent or whatever it might be, paying that amount out in a tax effective way to various beneficiaries. That's a good structure, tried and true. It's been used a million times. And indeed it was used a million times with respect in this group. And so on the face of it, um, we are able to say, um, well, uh, you know, let's dissolve this. And um, the answer to that is, well, you've chosen a structure uh, and the choice of that structure is such that it is one you're going to have to be bound to. And the fact you've chosen to incorporate all these companies, all these trusts, 
without some overarching document that can govern the relationship between them all is an outcome you're going to have to be bound to. And so a good structure for tax that we've just discussed turned out to not necessarily be the best structure that the parties wanted when it came time to dissolve their relationships. Okay. Can I take you to a sequel to the earlier discussion we had? And we won't spend as much time on this one, I promise. This is another decision involving Zvir PTY Limited. Um, Zvir PTY Limited is the company that operated that accounting firm that I referred to. Remember, we had that accounting firm and the partner who went off had to come back and account. Uh, the decision of Chickabo and Zvir, I think it was. Now, here we have an action brought by like a 9% partner of this partnership who also wanted to come in and sue this defendant for a slice of what they had directed away from the partnership, right? They said, hey, I wasn't aware of this earlier piece of litigation. Uh, and so now is my opportunity to come and bring proceedings. And that's what I'm going to do. And what the defendant had to raise was the issue of res, what well, number of issues, including res, raise, res, res judicata. Someone will uh, correct me on my pronunciation there and say, look, this is done. Or in the alternative, say, hey, there's a settlement deed that the parties entered into that dealt with this litigation on behalf of the partnership and you're bound by it. Now, what is important is that the defendant succeeds uh, in relation to that point. There is a deed. The deed appoints a representative of the partnership prior to the departure of the plaintiff in these proceedings. Forgive me if this gets too technical. And remember, if we fall down a technical rabbit hole, get the paper from me. And I've also done a case note on this that I can direct you to that'll be more detailed and probably better organized than what I'm saying now. But in essence, there's a deed that empowered the parties, the controlling minds behind the new partnership after the retiring partner departed to conduct that piece of litigation and to settle it on terms they saw fit, which they did. And so that meant that the partner who was suing, the partner left out of that earlier litigation, as they would see it, um, was unable to recover for their 9% slice of the amount claimed. And the other fiddly interesting bit here is that when you say you're a partner in respect of 9% or whatever it was this partner was claiming, what you're actually saying is that is the proportion of partnership assets that I would be entitled to on the dissolution of the partnership. Does that make sense? So you've got to dissolve that in order to cash out. It does not say, I own 9% of every asset the partnership has. I hope that makes sense. So there's a difference between a percentage entitlement to the proceeds of dissolution of the partnership versus a proportionate ownership stake of the assets of the partnership. And try saying that 10 times fast and try saying that uh, when you haven't eaten any lunch, which I plan to do shortly. Uh, I've got two more cases I'd like to cover with you. Uh, apparently three more, but I'm going to skip one. And let's skip Christian and Cooper. Uh, and let's head to Scrivener and Capello, uh, but not before we do Calicosi. Right, Calicosi related to four or five partners. And the fundamental issue here is... Um, when we are disposing of these partnership assets um, in circumstances where 
there were four people who were members of the same family, some of them siblings and some of them people married to the siblings. There were certain times where the accounts of the partnership reflected what we might call four quarters and the final married couple who were the defendants, each taking an eighth, as it were. So they, they each had a one half entitlement to one quarter. And there were other records that suggested there were five partners, five fifths, with each partner taking a fifth, including spouse one taking a fifth and spouse two taking a fifth. And what the plaintiff said was, well, um, there were these contracts signed, there were payments accepted, and there were tax affairs managed on the basis of five fifths. What the four quarters argument was, was that drawings throughout the life of the partnership were paid in this way, was that the spouse of this couple and the sort of leading engaged spouse was paid a management fee and there was no agreement to vary the partnership proportion with successive financial statements being prepared on the basis of four quarters. And the court has to work through and balance this evidence between, yeah, is it this five fifths with these partners sort of becoming independent of their spousal relationship, if you were, or is it four quarters? The court works through the nature of the relationship between the part parties and finds four quarters. Now let's quickly do Scrivener and Capello. Um, the fundamental part of this decision is um, the payment of money that uh, we've got these two parties agreeing. They come together, they wanna to buy some adjoining properties, sell them at a profit, they share the costs and expenses of doing it. They wanna share the profits too. Sounds to you like a partnership, sounds to me like a partnership. The properties get bought, or most of them, and they get bought in the name of trustee of a trustee company that is under the control of one of these partners. And uh, what the other partner tries to do is go, oh great, well it's partnership property, I'll take that back now. And what the company, what the partner, or the alleged partner related to that trustee company says, ironically, is good luck enforcing any obligation to do that. Well, um, ironically, and irony tends to do this, um, the uh, applicant didn't need luck. Uh, there was a finding made that there was a partnership reached on the basis of the partnership between the two parties satisfying the features of the partnership. And what that meant was that the proceeds of sale held by the trustee company, member who was incorporated, owned the land, sold it, held the money, <coughs> were actually held on trust for the benefit of the partnership. And so that meant that each partner was entitled to those trust proceeds. And indeed, they are the orders the court eventually made. That's it for the moment of talking about judicially considered examples of partnership disputes. Gonna take a sip of water. Remember, we divided our talk today into three sections. Firstly, we talked about the law. We just finished our discussion about uh, some judicially considered examples, some contested cases about partnership disputes. And we're just about to get into some practical suggestions. Before that, can I do a quick bit of admin? This is the fourth of five uh, one hour CLEs I'm giving. The next time I'm giving in is in one fortnight from today. So I'd love to have your company to that one. I'd love you to share around the recorded uh, copy of this one if, you, if you'd like. If you think there's anyone around who takes some value from it, I'd be grateful if you were happy to share it around. Uh, I'm working from a paper. And if you'd like a copy of it, please feel free. Justin, great to have you in the room. Please feel free to uh, send me a DM to seek a copy of the paper. 
uh, or anything like that. And if you've joined more recently and you've missed something, don't worry, I'll end up uploading this on whatever platform you're on. So if you're on YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn, it's going to be there for a while, I think. If you're on Instagram, I'll put it on my, what do they call it, wall. I'll put it on my feed. I'll put it, whatever. You, like, you know what I mean when I say that. It'll be up there for you. So um, we've talked about the law. We've talked about the litigated decisions. Uh, we are going to talk practical suggestions. Now, before we get into practical suggestions of what I reckon ought to be going in a partnership agreement and that sort of thing, can I just push pause on our thinking? A partnership is a weird structure. And it's a structure that should not be adopted merely because your client comes in and says, oh, yeah, I've got some business partners. I want an agreement with them. So let's go make it a partnership agreement. And it should not be adopted uh, simply because you recently attended a CLE on Instagram about it. It's a structure that's, I'll use the word weird loosely. It's a structure that is specific and it has specific obligations that arises from it. And those obligations, if you're a lawyer, can have really serious ramifications for your client. So do not enter, do, do not advise your client to enter into a partnership agreement without considering closely whether your client's happy to be bound to those various features, sharing profits, sharing losses. A really interesting one is mutual agency. Does your client want the acts of someone else to bind them? Well, I know how I feel about that. And the answer is, well, it depends on the person, <laughs> right? And so you might be there advising your client in relation to that as well. And you need to bear that in mind. So let's say you've done that and you've decided, yep, yeah, right, how to think about that. Uh, and we're going to go ahead with a partnership uh, agreement. Well, what you want to do is, oh, I've skipped a whole useful section. Gosh, this is a good paper, team. This is a good, good paper. You'll enjoy it, I'm sure. Um, what you'll want to do is you'll want to see uh, that this agreement deals with how decisions are made and how you resolve deadlocks. And that might seem like, oh, yeah, how do you run a meeting? How do you make a decision? Might seem like a bit of a wishy-washy place and a strange place to start. But uh, with great respects to your criticism that I just made up in my head and then delivered to myself, uh, no, it's pretty important that your client understands how they're going to be able to deal with disagreements between partners so that the thing does not slide into deadlock. You want to think about capital, who's got to put money in, who can take money out, when can there be drawings, when are loans made by partners repaid, when do loans have to be made, what happens on death, what happens on incapacity, what happens on uh, bankruptcy, all that sort of stuff. Dissolution, dispute resolution. Gosh, this is a good list. Buy and sell, you know, exiting the business. Accretion, how do we add new partners? How do you remove a non-performing partner? Um, look, a warranty about who is and who is not a partner. I might linger on that warranty one, so I'm not just hitting you with the shopping list. The warranty as to who is or who is not a partner is not one I see in every partnership agreement I look at. And with great respect, that is a missed opportunity because uh, as we found in Chickabo and Zvere earlier, you might find yourself in a situation where you have a number of, as, as we had in that case, a number of companies who entered into an agreement together. And the argument was, well, are these natural persons who are the controlling minds of these companies also partners? And there was very expensive litigation. And the answer was, uh, yeah, uh, they are, uh, but not after the spending of a really serious amount of money to get there. And with great respect, that is litigation that could have been avoided by
by um, the draft person of the deed or the agreement, as I think it was, are turning their mind to that point. Okay. That is the end of what I planned to cover in this talk with a couple of things missed along the way. But uh, as I say, the paper's there. If you'd like it, feel free to DM me, feel free to email me. If you have questions right now is the time because I'm about to step out of the session. Uh, can I ask you, please, please, please to tell your friends or share this session with whoever you think might uh, bring you some value from it. I'd be really grateful if you're happy to do that. Uh, can I ask you to let me know if you took any value from this session? It actually these four and then the next one coming up take a fair bit of work putting in. And so I'd like to get an understanding as to whether, you know, whether they hit, um, whether they missed, that sort of thing. And aside from that, I'm planning to hop off. So thank you for your time there on Instagram. Thank you for your time there on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube. And I'll look forward to joining you again soon for another session. So that is that. Cheers. Or cheers Instagram, I should say. See you later. I'm going to click share on Instagram. Then it's going to upload and do all that sort of good stuff. And over here on YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, I'm going to end the broadcast. And, uh, oh, that's very kind of you. Oh, these people are. You're all saying really, really nice things. I'm really grateful. Uh, see you in a fortnight's time, please.